It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. Of course, he's going to talk about iCloud security, what we know and what we think might have happened. And we'll take a look at email encryption. Is PGP the best way to go or are there alternatives that are better? Stay tuned. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 471, recorded September 2nd, 2014. PGP, time for an upgrade? Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW and you'll get two bonus months with purchase. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. Save 50% off with a 12-month subscription. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN50 at checkout. And by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to AudiblePodcast.com slash security now. Time for Security Now, the show that brings you the latest security news. And boy, this is going to be a good one. Steve Gibson is here. He's the explainer-in-chief from the Gibson Research Corporation, creator of SpinRight. We talk about that, but also the discoverer and uh, writer of the very first spyware, anti-spyware program. He's been a longtime uh, foe of hackers and uh, and uh, exponent of strong security. And we've been doing this show now for and we're our ninth year. And I have webcams surrounding me, Leo. <laughs> I, I'm, I've got webcams all over the place. Why? Uh, I'll tell you about that a little bit later. Oh, in the good. Show. All right. Hi, Steve. Yep. Welcome. Good to talk we to you. We have a great uh, a bunch of news. You were talking about uh, it through the first half of of uh, MacBreak Weekly. This iCloud, iBrute, iHack uh, with you know fun with naked celebrities. Uh, we have uh, the Russians are coming. Uh, uh, another bad problem, actually really bad problem, with consumer Wi-Fi routers. Uh, a, a, a recent concern over fake cell phone. Everyone calls them fake cell phone towers only because, you know, they typically are towers. In this case, they're actually base stations. Uh, Crypto Locker clone. I wanted to chat with you briefly about something that I forgot to pick up last week, which is China's operating system. And I've heard you talk about it several times yeah, on other podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a brief update on Squirrel, which is why I'm surrounded by webcams. Uh, uh New trouble with RAID 5, which is interesting. And then our main topic is uh, to look at email encryption. Uh, it's sort of nominally about PGP because it was triggered by uh, by Matthew Green, of who's the cryptographer at Johns Hopkins, about his – it was his blog posting, which was it, what which – itself was triggered by the Google and Yahoo announcements they're going to be encrypt you know offering email encryption so we're going to sort of do a, a retrospective and prospective look at 
that whole issue of email encryption not it's, it's it's it turned out to be a little bit less specifically about PGP. PGP is just sort of a convenient, you know, whipping horse. Is that a is that a phrase? Yeah, a whipping. Whipping, yeah. whipping, po- whipping post, whipping, <laughs> stalking whipping horse, post. or whipping post. Stalking I don't, horse. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> to mix some metaphors, um, so yeah, lots to talk about, and uh, I think a great podcast. Yeah, and I have a lot of interest in uh, email encryption. I've used PGP to sign my mail, mail for years, and I am very well aware of all the issues, just from a point of view of a user that uh, come up. I've recently switched over to SMIME. Um, just because it's a little more straightforward, so I'm, I'm, yes, curi- I'm curious about this. You mentioned that before, and and I loved the way I loved the way Matthew com- concluded his blog. He said, "I realize I found a bit cranky about this stuff, but as they say, a PGP critic is just a PGP user <laughs> who's actually <laughs> who's actually used the software yeah. for a while." Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Oh, I can I can uh, I'll, I'll give you some. Uh, some color play-by-play as uh, as we yeah, go along here from the field. Yeah, uh, but I do want to mention our sponsor uh, today because we have a great one, uh, and in a way, this sponsor would eliminate a lot of the problems people experience uh, due to security flaws like Crypto Locker. I'm talking about Carbonite Online Backup, the best way to secure your data, whether you're at home or at a small business. Carbonite is automatic, continuous online backup. Backs it up to the cloud. I know there are those of you who say, well, how secure is it? Well, I can tell you this. Not only does it use SSL during all backup processes, but it allows you to do trust no one encryption. Only you have the key. Now, some features that Car- we talk about with Carbonite, of course, can't uh, you can't have, for instance, access to that data from other devices if you're using trust no one encryption. So, But it does make it possible. And I think it, for people, especially listening to security now, especially in light of these uh, iCloud failure, this is very good to know. You can secure this stuff end-to-end encryption so that even if your account were hacked or even if somebody at Carbonite were compromised, it it wouldn't be visible to them. I think that's really important. They have uh, solutions for business as well, a Carbonite appliance that does local and off-site backup that's fabulous. It is easy to use. Uh, It's one of the reasons we talk about Carbonite a lot on the radio show is it's the kind of thing even uh, even non you know inexperienced or non sophisticated users can turn on and just forget it will work. Your free trial awaits you at carbonite.com. If you use our offer code security now during the free trial, you'll get two bonus months when you decide to buy. Uh, you pay once a year, fifty nine dollars ninety nine cents a year for, and there is no limit on the data. By the way, you're only limited by the amount of your bandwidth. Frankly, um, there's no limit to how much you can upload. You don't have to meter it, or and they don't either. That's less than five bucks a month for a computer. They have small business, external drives, network attached storage plans. And you'll note for a limited time, you can get even more savings if you buy for two or three years. Carbonite is a great deal. Try it right now, free, no credit card required. And if you decide to buy, use the offer code security now. Uh, that'll let them know you heard about it right here. We appreciate it if you do that. Carbonite.com. All right, Steve, where do we start with this big lineup here? So, uh, you know, you were talking for the first half of Mac Break Weekly pretty much about this iCloud breach. And I think it's significant that we don't, we don't really have proof yet from anything that Apple has told us that, you know, like the, the nature of the, of the breach. Certainly, it was wrong to, for, for 
the Find My iPhone interface not to have any sort of lockout. And so what well, what we do know, and this this could be completely tangential to the to to the fact that you know a hundred celebrities got personal uh, and, and private parts uploaded to the internet. But what we do know is that on GitHub, there was a project uh, called iBrute, and it it just leveraged the fact that the the API for Find My iPhone had no rate limiting and no no failure lockout of any sort, which was a clearly was an oversight on Apple's part. Again, it's one of those where are we're back to our classic trade-off of of security and convenience you know if they have a lockout some people are going to lock themselves out and and like it's it, well <laughs> and whereas like the next guess they of like their many passwords that they use might have been right but the lockout occurs just before they get to that one and now they can't get in, and then they've got to go to you know do I forgot my password at Apple. So, and we should point now- out that, and we read this on uh, MacBreak Weekly, but Apple has put out a, a statement, in, in and and which they said there is no flaw uh, in iCloud or Find My iPhone. They, by the way, fixed that rate limiting issue uh, yesterday. Yes, and, immediately. And they said that it was in fact an individualized attack. That utilized uh, secret questions, among other things. So, well, and that yes, and that leads me perfectly into the next point, which is, um, th- we 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 covered a couple of weeks ago the news about the discovery of the massive database in South Central Russia of nominally. 4.5 billion email addresses and names, which when filtered and dupe eliminated and sorted through, still left us with 1.2 billion names. Now, the reason I bring this up is that there is a, uh, a DNS, uh, a, a, domain na- a domain name registrar, DNS and, and website hosting provider uh, by the name of Namecheap, who yesterday blogged their urgent security warning um, about the fact that their site was under attack. Uh, Mark Russell, uh, who's the VP of their hosting services, posted yesterday on Labor Day. And and what he put down was just very responsible and I think so clear. I just want to share it. He said, overnight, our intrusion detection systems alerted us to a much higher than normal load against our login systems. Upon investigation, we determined that the username and password data gathered from third-party sites, likely the data identified by the register, is being used to try and gain access to Namecheap.com accounts. The group behind this is using the stored usernames and passwords to simulate a web browser login through fake browser software. This software simulates the actual login process a user would use if they are using Firefox slash Safari slash Chrome, you know, any of the standard browsers, to access their Namecheap account. 
the hackers are going through their username password list and trying each and every one to try to get into Namecheap user accounts. The vast majority of these login attempts have been unsuccessful as the data is incorrect or old and passwords have been changed. As a precaution, we are aggressively blocking the IP addresses that appear to be logging in with the stolen password data because those can't be spoofed. You have to have a, a TCP connection so you have the IP address of the, of the source. I'm just adding there. And, and he, he goes on. We're also logging these IP addresses and we'll be exporting blocking rules across our network to completely eliminate access to any name cheap system or service, as well as making this data available to law enforcement. While the vast majority of these logins are unsuccessful, some have been successful. To combat this, We've temporarily secured the Namecheap accounts that have been affected and are currently contacting customers involved requesting they, they improve the security of these accounts. So then he, he – I skipped a bunch and then he says – he concludes, I must reiterate, as Apple did, this is not a security breach at Namecheap nor a hack against us. The hackers are using usernames and passwords being, being used – that have been obtained from other sources. These have not been obtained from Namecheap, but these usernames and passwords that the hackers now have are being used to try to log into Namecheap accounts. On early investigation, I'm sorry, our early investigation shows that those users who use the same password for their Namecheap account that are used on other websites are the ones who are vulnerable. Yeah, so, so it's not even a Namecheap attack. It's correct. Just, uh, it's uh, using the same password. Well, and so what's interesting is the the coincidence of these two unrelated, except in time, attacks. That is, this sounds like exactly the attack that went after Find My iPhone, which was was not being monitored. And and was not rate limited or or and and didn't have any uh, any X number of of mistakes against the account. So it again hypothesizing here, but this could also be the same attack on Apple could be what Namecheap has 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 you know saw and is now blocking. Which you know from their information they believe to be the use of this massive database uh, that we've talked about weeks ago uh, which would and, and it was um remember um, it was the it was some guy with a security firm that was charging 120 dollars a year to like let you to let you know but it turns out that individuals I guess were able to check but corporations had to pay in order to make sure that you know their information wasn't vulnerable and everybody felt a little creepy about it because you had to you know give them all of your information like give put it in your web browser you had to give them your yeah. passwords which is crazy <laughs> exactly so i don't i mean there's a, there's reason to believe that's not that that isn't the source of the uh, uh attack it seems to be that this attack has been long uh going on that the Jonathan Shadarsky has been tweeting a lot about this, and he see, he believes that it was the iCloud backups from the victims' phones that were compromised, 
partly because of the kind of data, the names of the data. Apple said it was a very targeted attack on usernames, passwords, and security questions. Um, so I, I, it feels to me like this might have been uh, – I bet you they were taking advantage of the of the lack of rate limiting on the Find My iPhone yes. and just yes. brute forcing passwords yes. for particular people. If you say, "Look, I want to get Leo Laporte's iCloud backup," let's just guess. You need to guess or know the email that they use. One well, of the gee, uh, and yours is a, yours is a big secret, Leo. Yeah, mine's secret. <laughs> One of the things <laughs> Renee Ritchie said on MacBreak Weekly is that's a good a good a good reason to use an email that is not your first and last name. Right. At gmail.com, because that's the first thing people guess. And then you just keep hitting that, uh, maybe with several people, maybe many people, just keep hitting that. Well, and if you know who you want to get. And when you have as for for a, a smaller organization, for example, uh, such as Namecheap.com, an attack on them is going to make a big blip on their radar. They're going to see but it, with, yeah. With yes, but with an organization as large as Apple, with the kind with, with, with the ecosystem as large as theirs, it's going to be you know a you know as long as it isn't like a denial of service attack of you know guessing usernames and passwords. If they if it's just a trickle, um, and right. over time right. they crack them, then that's gonna that's gonna slip under the radar. So uh, it is. I mean. The, the really good thing that came from this is that something that should have had an account lockout now has one, though, again, it's a trade-off. Apple will, you know, users are going to be inconvenienced, whereas, but, you know, you could argue that, well, yes, they deserve it if they are unable to log into their account after however many attempts Apple has set. Do we know how many that is? Did, did, did Jonathan post? On the new, on the new uh, standard? I don't know. No. Yeah. They, Apple yeah, I, says... I did, I did, Apple says to protect against this type of attack, we advise all you, and I think this is a clue, all users to always use a strong password and enable two-step verification. And be my guess, you know, if you have a strong password, a brute force is going to be very difficult. So be my guess that uh, Apple's in a way hinting these people didn't have strong passwords and were not using two-step verification. Those yep. things can be turned on. You know, that's just a matter of changing your password and making it strong. That's what Jadarsky posted. Uh, on his tweet is that a people should not only do that lock down your account but to also delete your iCloud backups uh you know of your iPhone and iPad because that is apparently what people are grabbing and it should well, be pointed is, out that they got if they got that they got a lot more than just photos yes yeah the photos were just what was juicy that they were able to share it's it's interesting too that this happened all at once i mean i wonder if this was a well, labor day a labor day release no. of Data that was accumulated That's over a much longer period yeah. of time. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell because it was a backup. So a lot of the contents were old, some as many as three years old. But that's a backup, right? It may, you know, if you kept it on your phone for three years and you backed up your phone, it's going to be there. So I don't think it was that also noteworthy that apparently some of the imagery showed people with non-Apple phones, and so I mean we don't we don't absolutely know where all of this came from. We just know that. You know, iCloud seems to have been implicated. Well, Jodarski says that uh, the file names of it, he has at least one complete dump, and that file name indicates an iCloud backup. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and nobody's uh, talked about anything else uh, except uh, iCloud. Um, I, yeah, I haven't looked at the pictures, so I don't know that there are non-Apple phones in them, but... Uh, 
Yeah, I it it feels. And by the way, from the information Zdarsky is tweeting out, I think they're going to catch the person who did this. Lots of information was left behind in this dump. Uh, for instance, he knows uh, what photo editor was used on some of these photos. There's a UUID in these files. There's a lot of information that uh, law enforcement can use to to get this person. Really, does sound like this had been pending for a while. That like this was all. This was all collected over time and then dumped out at once in order to make quite a big splash, as yeah. I guess it did. Um, and, and it was posted to Fortchan, uh, Fortchan, Fortchan, right? And there, and uh, yeah. you know, there's nothing you can do much about Fortchan slash B. That's that's no. uh, that's kind of a wild west out of our control yeah. there. And I don't think for I don't know if Fortchan's taken it down. Every other source has taken it down, and even people like uh, Perez Hilton, who initially posted links have taken their links down, realizing, you know, he says, I am sorry, I should never have posted that. I think there's a general um, general point uh, attitude that this was a, this is a bad thing, and nobody wants to participate in this at this point. 4chan was charging $95 for access to them. Were they? So, yeah, yeah they were making... I don't think that's the case. Uh, no, Steve, I don't, 4chan it. doesn't do that. I don't think it was 4chan. I think it may be that the person who put this up offered it to... Uh, for sale, and we know that they offered it to TMZ for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't think I don't think 4chan um, does that. I ran across that this morning in my in my research. Yeah, I, I don't believe that's the case. I think the person on 4chan may have asked for money. 4chan ah, okay. is, is not is a wide open forum. It's not, and I would be very surprised if Moot would do that. That does not seem like they're they're the kind of thing they would do. So we do have uh, a new, very, very worrisome uh, Wi-Fi exploit against uh, consumer routers. Um, and this is one, another problem with WPS that we've spoken about before. In fact, uh, early in 2012, uh, our January 10th podcast, number 335, uh, the title of that was Wi-Fi Protected in Security. Um, and our longtime listeners may remember that there, there was a very clever hack that was found uh, and some software called Reaver was created. We, we, we joked at the time that, they, that the, apparently the, the guy who did it, who generated the hack, was a, was a fan of Firefly since the, the Reavers were, you know, some of the, the creepy bad people on, on the Firefly uh, sci-fi series. Um, and, you, and so you'll remember that the, the secret here was that the WPS key is eight digits. It's an eight-digit code printed on the labels of many WPS-enabled wireless routers. And the idea is that when you that if you provide this pin, this eight-digit pin, to the router, it and so you're 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 proving that you're physically present and able to read the label on the router. You provide the pin to the router through your Wi-Fi client, like running on Windows or something that has a WPS option. And the router will then provide your client with its passphrase, which it which is like a so so the whole idea is a, it's a it's a simple way to to get 
to, to, to prove you have control of the router and it just hands you the passphrase, which allows you and encourages you to have a crazy passphrase that you're unable to enter conveniently otherwise. Okay, so the problem then was that, first of all, the eighth digit of the eight digits wasn't actually uh, information bearing. It was a checksum on the other seven. So we could kind of forget about that. So that left us with seven, seven digits, and there are 10 million combinations of seven digits for brute forcing. And if you made a mistake, if you typed in the wrong one, then the router would lock you out for, I think it was like 43 seconds for some reason. I mean, it's like, you know, some chunk of time. So that there was a penalty, but not onerous, for for entering the wrong one so that the typical user would be told to wait a minute they'd wait then they would fix their typo and prop and hopefully put it in correctly the second time the point is that 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 lockout was a long enough delay that when coupled with the 10 million combinations of seven digits where the eighth one is you know it can always be calculated as a checksum prevented anyone from getting access to your passphrase. What, um, what was discovered back at the beginning of 2012 was a glitch in the protocol. And, and I'm sure as I went back, as I refreshed my memories, like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember this. Um, there, was a, there was a multi-phase handshake back and forth. And after the first four digits were put in, it was possible to determine whether those were right, separate from the entire seven. And that was the fault. That was the flaw. Because what that meant was that you could crack this in halves. You could, you could, there were only 10,000 combinations of four digits. So that's way fewer than 10 million. So you could, you could, you could brute force over some period of time, average is going to be half of that, um, assuming an average pin. So and an average of half that many guesses, so 5,000 guesses times the, 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 the minimum um, lockout period allowed you to get the first four. Then you only had the last three. And so there's only 1,000 of those. So Overall, in 11,000 guesses times the lockout period, a person could get in. And it worked perfectly for everyone who had WPS enabled. And at the time, we said WPS was, you know, not a good protocol. Clearly, the, 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 a, a worrisome trade-off between usability and security. Everybody should turn it off. That was our advice then. Now what has come to light is a new problem. And the uh, uh, Dominique Bongard, uh, who is the founder of, of Oxite Security in Switzerland, uh, has made a presentation about this. So this is now in the public. Um, and essentially, he has found for some routers, he can crack... WPS in one second. Basically, just 
no time. Now, um, there are two classes of routers where he has found a vulnerability. Um, the problem is that routers based on a Broadcom chip, um, and apparently that there's a, a you know, we're, we're sort of at the first stage of this. Broadcom has been notified. Um, the, the problem with the firmware, and in, in fact, this was the same problem we talked about two and a half years ago, and that is they implemented the demonstration firmware. It was just sort of, it was the proof of concept. It was like, here's some sample firmware for how you would implement. I, I remember that this came from Intel and it was like the WPS firmware. And it was like, do not use this, but you know, here's some, here's some sample firmware, but we're not doing error checking and blah, 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 because we don't want to bog the code down with a lot of extra stuff you actually need to have because then it'll be less clear what's really going on. So this was just the demo firmware that got written into the EEPROMs of these routers. Well, we sort of had the same thing because it turns out that the, the pseudo-random number generator in the firmware of this class of routers um, that is based on the Broadcom chip is just a 32-bit simple linear congruential PRNG. And I've talked about the trouble with linear congruential PRNGs. That's one where you, you have a value and you multiply it by a constant and then add another constant to get the next value. You discard the, you, you discard the overflow from that. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's not cryptographically secure in any way. It produces sort of a, it produces a, an, an unpredictable number if you don't know the constants unless you look at a few of them and then any cryptographer can reverse engineer the constants. So, I mean, e even if the constants varied, but they don't, they're burned into the code. So this thing produces a fixed pattern of, uh, quote, pseudo-random numbers. I mean, very pseudo. Um, and it turns out that the, that the, the, the nonce, which is generated by the access point at the beginning of the WPS negotiation is taken from the pseudo-random number generator, and then two other crucial nonces for the handshake, which have to be secret, are subsequently taken. Well, the act of taking the data from the pseudo-random number generator shows you its state. And so, and this, this, the access point's first nonce used at the beginning of the handshake is public. So you so the attack is you tell the access point you want to initiate a WPS negotiation. It hands you the nonce which it just got from its lame pseudo random number generator. That gives you the state of the pseudo random number generator and then you know the two secrets which it's about to obtain subsequently from the pseudo-random number generator. So 
you so it's possible in less than a second to to completely compute the secrets that the handshake uses and crack the pin so um this is the this is the condition of of a class of routers based on the broadcom chip the other class is turns out to be even worse um and uh, and Dominique has not disclosed the manufacturer. He's giving them to- the time to remediate the problem. That one is based on a a linear feedback shift register. So it's a it's a common technique used again for generating weak pseudo random numbers. And they they can be stronger than a linear congruential pseudo random number generator. For example. Uh, cellular phones use linear feedback shift registers because they, they, they can run very fast. If designed well, they can generate very good pseudo-random numbers very fast. But if it's ever possible to know the state of the feedback shift register, then you know all of its future. It turns out that this router initializes the shift register to zero <laughs> whenever it's powered up. So cracking Wi-Fi that's protected by this one is as simple as somehow getting it to reboot. Um, you could, for example, briefly interrupt the power, uh, trip the breakers, as Dominique puts it, uh, and then turn the power back on. The router will reboot and come up in a known state and generate absolutely repeatable pseudo-random numbers for its WPS PS negotiation, and again, you're in. So uh, the takeaway is there there is another bad WPS breach. We don't yet have model numbers and manufacturers. We only know Broadcom, Chip, and this other one is as yet unknown. But if if anyone didn't turn WPS login or negotiation off in their router firmware two and a half years ago, now would be a good time to do it. Um, so, and I, I, did, I did check mine to make sure mine was still off because, you know, things change over time. In fact, I think I have a different router than I did three years ago. Uh, and mine doesn't have WPS as an option. So I was glad for that. So uh, it's, again, it may not affect everybody, but uh, WPS is has been a, and, and it has been a troubled protocol in the past. It's manufacturers responded by by making a, a a harder lockout and a longer lockout rather than fixing the protocol, which they actually couldn't change because it was already baked into the clients that were expecting it to be available. In some cases, you have to press a button to enable it, uh, and then it's only on for some length of time. That's certainly better than if the than if the protocol just sitting there wide open happy to negotiate with any stranger who comes along, which is the the typical case uh, uh, several years ago. So good idea just to turn this off um, uh, or or turn it on during the brief window of use where you're negotiating uh, a WPS-capable client to your router and then turn it off again because uh, it's just a bad thing to leave on. 
Uh, also in the news was uh, several different reports of so-called stingray, which is the term they're being given, uh, fake cell phone towers. Uh, again, they're not towers. They're typically just base stations. Um, but uh, it, it came to people's attention that that and and there 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 were some headlines that were a little bit overwrought again talking about how they could be used for installing malware in android phones which goes way too far um it does speak to the the concern that we've talked about on this podcast before of the so-called baseband radio that that you know, all cell phones, smartphones uh, have an operating OS that we talk about, Android and iOS and so forth, and then and another sort of a lower level real time OS that runs the cell phone circuitry, the cell phone radio, and I mean it's intelligent. It doesn't get nearly as much scrutiny as it should. It's just sort of clouded in secrecy, and so the concern is that there there could be vulnerabilities there that haven't had the attention that the the OSs that we're used to interacting with and that we run apps on have had and that if you had malicious malicious cell phone uh base stations or towers that is things mimicking uh real cell phone uh towers uh then they could get up to some mischief so it turns out that there actually is um, a an infrastructure of these. Uh, the FBI, uh, DEA, the U.S. Secret Service, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the the U.S. Marshal Service, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the National Guard, U.S. Special Ops, uh, and not to be left out, the NSA. All are known to have these things. Um, there on on one website, there, there's a site called Meganet.com that sells stuff into law enforcement and government, and they have something called the VME Dominator, uh, is their name for this. And they 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 said it's a real time GSM A 5.1 cell phone interceptor. It cannot be detected. It allows interception of voice and text. It allows voice manipulation, up or down channel blocking, text intercept and modification, calling and sending text on behalf of the user, and directional finding of a user during random monitoring of calls. The ACLU is all up in arms over this, feeling that it, it you know, breaches uh, U.S. citizen uh, sovereignty. Uh, they have a map showing the uh, 18 states in the U.S. that are known to have government uh, facilities using this. And so, you know, this is apparently this is something that law enforcement uses for for tracking people. Uh, essentially, they're they're mobile fake cell towers that that users' cell phones will associate with, believing that they are legitimate. Um, and, and then essentially someone who is not the, uh, the cellular carrier uh, has 
decrypted access to the otherwise encrypted over-the-air data, uh, which they're able to do anything with they want. So, you know, for IME tracking, and I guess with a couple of these, you're able to to pretty much zero in on the location of someone. So, yeah, you can imagine that uh, the government is using this technology and taking advantage of the fact that so many people are carrying cell phones uh, with them all the time. Uh, there is a new CryptoLocker clone. Uh, the, the site that we like a lot, uh, really uh, a great work by Lawrence Abrams. Uh, that's the Bleeping Computer site. And thanks to Simon Zarafa, who follows the show and, and tweets all of his findings to me uh, for pointing this out. Uh, there is ransomware, which is absolutely not CryptoLocker. But it's now taking advantage of the reputation of CryptoLocker to call itself CryptoLocker. <laughs> that's funny. Now that's so, funny. <laughs> so it, it works nothing the same. I mean, it, like all of the – it's completely rewritten, clearly from other people, uses a different network. It actually uh, leverages Tor uh, for its stuff. Uh, it 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 puts a dot encrypted extension on the encrypted files, which CryptoLocker doesn't and, and never did do. Um, they're charging 1.8 Bitcoin, Ooh, that's which at lot. the moment is yeah about 864 dollars US, uh, and it calls itself. It says you've been infected by CryptoLocker just because now everybody knows about that. That's the brand. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's crypto locker. It's brand. still strong encryption. It's the same same effectiveness. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it, it looks like it's bad stuff. Uh, you. It, it operates differently, though. For, well, I mean, as, as I said, it's very different. So uh, there isn't the same sort of. It, it's not clear to me that there's the same sort of pre-encryption handshake. Um, uh, what we do know. And, and this has just been spotted in the wild, so it hasn't had you know deep analysis yet. But it puts a cookie, PHP Sesh ID cookie, on your machine, so that when you then go to the site to make your payment in order to get to to pick up a downloadable executable that will give you give you your files back, the your browser provides this PHP SES ID SE PHP SE ID cookie to you know as part of its transaction to the site which will then um, look you up in its database in order to provide you with the matching uh, decryption for your files. Um, and and Lawrence noted in his blog posting about this that was yesterday. Boy, I tell you, Labor Day was a busy day <laughs> all around. Um, that currently it is not deleting Windows shadow volume copies. So there, it is possible to do some recovery uh, of encrypted files uh, if 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 uh, volume shadow copies are still around from. From the, and containing files that this thing has encrypted. So, anyway, it's uh, uh, there's it's it's looking like as you said, Leo, a crypto locker is becoming sort of a trademark uh, of. <laughs> well, we of, all know what it does, know, right? I mean, bad exactly bad ransomware. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like oh yeah, okay, crypto locker. That's bad. That's bad. We know that's bad. Hey, let's take a little break okay. if you don't mind. 
Perfect. Because uh, I know we have more to talk about, including PGP, and if it's time to replace PGP. But I do want to talk a little bit about a security uh, tool that you all ought to know about. If you don't, Steve's talked about it before, the idea of having a um, of open VPN protecting you when you're on open Wi-Fi networks. And nowadays we know that yep. since, since – um, our ISPs are snooping on us. Maybe we're always on an open open network. Uh, Pro XPN is a hosted open VPN solution. Steve approved. We wouldn't do it on the show if Steve didn't approve it. Uh, it gives you uh, kind of everything you're looking for. You could, you know, we know that some some of you uh, are smart enough. Steve is to run your own uh, VPN server, so you can go to a, a Starbucks, for instance, and uh, log into their open Wi-Fi and not worry about people snooping on you. Uh, surfing back to your home, or maybe you're using the work VPN to do the same thing. There, That's fine. Not for everybody, certainly. Uh, not for me. But there's another reason why you might want to use Pro XPN, because they're hosted all over the world. You emerge on the internet, not from your personal network at home or at work, but from Dallas or Seattle or London or Singapore or Amsterdam. So it also eliminates any geographic restrictions, and it really does confuse your internet service provider. If you, <laughs> if your ISP is watching your home and watching your work, well, you don't have to worry about it because uh, a Pro XPN somewhere else. A really great solution. They also offer uh, something that uh, you may not have, which is mobile apps that give you Open VPN on uh, Android, which is very nice, and iOS. So. Uh, you know, in some cases on a mobile platform, you have to use PPTP because they don't support support OpenVPN. Well, thanks to Open uh, Pro XPN, they do. Uh, protect yourself. If your uh, ISP is the kind of person uh, that wants to snoop on what you're doing so they can enforce the six strikes rule, or if you're, if you're blocked from using uh, the uh, Internet services in other countries because of your location, this eliminates that. World-class customer support. Um, they are a very good company providing um, just excellent service. And right now they've got a special offer. The uh, If you go to proxpn.com slash twit, you can learn about it. The offer code SN50 will give you 50% off the monthly price when you sign up for a 12-month subscription. Half off, less than 5 bucks a month when you sign up for a year. They do have a, a basic free plan that you can try. But I think it's nice to try the premium plan. Of course, they have a seven-day cancellation policy, a full refund after seven days. So you might as well try the premium plan. Go to proxpn.com slash twit. And do use the offer code SN50, SN50, to get 50% off your 12-month subscription. By the way, you can pay with Visa. Yes, they still take Visa, PayPal, and Bitcoin. I like that. Proxpn.com. Slash twit. All right, let's continue on. Steve Gibson with his litany of security messes. I was going to say my 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 own particular use of Open VPN is for authentication because ah. I want if I'm if I'm roaming, I want to be able to access GRC's internal network. Several times, well, that's how businesses use it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, several times when I've been up in Petaluma uh, with you, I've needed to to tweak something on GRC's servers, and so I so I use the the certificates as, as you know, and of course passwords on top of that for uh, to authenticate me to uh, uh, GRC's network yeah. uh, remotely, That's, and I do the same thing for for home when I want just need to get to my network from when I'm out roaming around. I am sure that's how most people first experience VPN is that that's how they got into the office network securely. Right. 
from home. Right. Um, and then they thought, oh, I could continue to surf and I'd be looking like I was coming from the office. But why not? I mean, this this takes it completely out of your own domain, even out of the country, which is, I think, a good yeah. way to do it. So let's, you and me, mm-hmm. talk about China's doing their own operating system. Yes. And because you've talked about it a couple times, and I just don't understand why they wouldn't adapt a, a regular Linux desktop environment. I, I mean, think like, they're well, they why were doing rein, a, why, why reinvent chopsticks? Right, they were doing a Red OS uh, some years ago. We knew this based on Linux, a version of Linux. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if this new OS. Uh, who knows if it's written from scratch or based on a Linux kernel uh, or what? I think the you know if if China is going to do an OS, they want to do it for a couple of reasons, mostly because they want to control it, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And um, so. You could certainly start with a Linux code base. Oh, but God, I, I can't imagine not doing I mean, that. I mean, so much good work has open. been done. Yeah, exactly. Well, open it's is not what China there. wants. <laughs> no, no, but but I mean, it, but start it, with it's it. open. Yeah, it, it, it's open in terms of it being a fully functional, right. beautifully designed, I mean, state-of-the-art, robust platform, and and open in terms of them being able to scrutinize it to make sure there's no NSA tricks right. in there, you know, which they can't do with, with Windows, you know, inherently. Or any so, closed source OS, right? Right, right. And I've, I've right. made the point, and you probably heard it, that uh, China has the expertise. There's so many good engineers. It's a, there's a billion people. There's so many great yep. engineers there. Um, and Paul Thorat was saying, why do this? I mean, look how long it's taken to create Windows and make it robust and reliable. Yeah, but uh, China has a little bit more resources than Microsoft. Oh, my God. All they have to do is stop attacking us and just work work on their operating system. I bet they could do both. <laughs> There's also, also the issue of the language, which I mentioned to Paul, which is that, you know, the Chinese language is notoriously difficult uh, because it's not it's not an alphabet. It's ideographs. And that right. makes it very hard for everything. And uh, um, it's one of the reasons they're actually very hard, very aggressively pushing English language education in China. Yeah, I, I you know, the, the, the question for me is not why are they doing it now? It's not what took them so long. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, with this with this obvious sort of adversarial tension that exists, certainly in the cyber level with the West, it's like, why, why are you using yeah. Windows of yeah. all things? Yeah. I mean, that just makes, that's crazy. So, yeah, I just, uh, I, it'll be interesting to see what it is. Um, and I will, I will note of Paul's comment that, while it's true that it's taken us a long time to get Windows, I would I would note that we had Windows a long time ago, and that all Microsoft has done since is just to mess with it and in order to make us continually upgrade it and generate revenue for them. I mean, it's not clear to me that this does a lot more today than three one did, you know, right, right. twenty years ago. Um, I mean, yeah, it's fancier and it's got more I/O and memory and so forth. But you know, my I guess my point is that anyone starting today could do an OS from scratch because we know how to do that now. We really weren't sure how to do what we have today thirty years ago. There's been a, you know, Microsoft is carrying a huge load of legacy forward in the same way that Intel is with an instruction set that they now regret, but. You know, the both both companies, Intel and Microsoft, are succeeding specifically because everything that they ever did still works. 
and nobody wants to give that up. So uh, I, I just I'll be surprised if it turns out that this isn't a Linux derived desktop environment. It's like you know that's what I would do. You know, they're not asking me, but it right. just seems clear. Yeah, a lot of the problems have been solved. And let's not forget, Linux was written by one person, a graduate student. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, now, of course, there's a lot of other people contributing to it. But the Linux kernel itself was a, a single-person operation. Operating systems yeah. are pretty well understood by now. Yeah, and, and in fact, a microkernel, there have been some really neat work recently on a microkernel where, where virtually everything, essentially Anything that doesn't have to be in the kernel isn't. So it's a scheduler and it's process management. Everything, everything else you can do outside in so-called user space and, and you know, create a, a very robust, very small kernel that, I mean, you know, that, that, that computer science graduates could do as their, as, as right. their project. Right. You know. Simple enough. Uh, so it turns out that outputting a QR code, Leo, is way simpler oh. than inputting one. Oh. <laughs> Tell me the, reason, the reason I'm surrounded by webcams is that, uh, that I decided that to make my Squirrel client complete, I had to allow importing of QR codes. Um, just, I mean, for convenience sake, that, you know, the the printed form of a squirrel identity that I held up to the screen last week uh, is both in a QR code and, and a, a, a simplified um, Base64 ASCII. So someone could enter that if they want to, but the QR code is, is simple. But say somebody develops or designs or, or sets their squirrel ID on an Android phone or an iOS device first. I mean, if they, they download Squirrel, they get their ID set up, and they want to transfer it to their Windows machine. Well, arguably, there are ways to do that, you know, through, through email, and, and Windows has a file system, and so there's probably a way to do it. The simple way is to show your identity on the screen of your phone to your webcam on your laptop. Uh, and, you know, most Windows machines now, la uh, laptops have webcams built in. So anyway, I bit the bullet. Uh, I think it was shortly after the podcast last week. And oh, my Lord, um, it's uh, it's been an adventure. I, I've I've I'm nearly finished. I had to it turns out that I tried to use the earlier standard for Windows, which is called you, you'll, you'll remember video for Windows VFW. And it's simple to wow, use. I haven't heard that in a while. I know. Well, and so I, I figured go go to the lowest common denominator. And the first the, is the it webcam still in that Windows? I, yeah, video for Windows is still there. <laughs> and again, that, that's what I'm talking Thank about. You, Microsoft, legacy. you never kill anything. Legacy, yeah. exactly. And the other thing is, I, I'm we're we're this all runs under Wine, so Macs can use it. Uh, that have wine and Linux can use it. And I figured, again, lowest common denominator, if, if they've supported any kind of video stuff, it will be the oldest stuff, the video for Windows library. Turns out, though, that so my, my video for Windows implementation came right up and I'm looking at video from my webcam. But I've got a bunch of webcams. It didn't recognize any of the other ones. And so I was like, oh, oh 
And so then I so I found some random like video capture thing that I downloaded and it recognized all of my webcams. So I thought, okay, I just can't, you know, I'm not going to go halfway. So then I had the only way to do this correctly is with something called Direct Show, which is written on top of DirectX, which is written on top of COM, which is Microsoft's common object model, uh, which is, you know, nobody likes who's ever programmed and they've never done it in assembly language. So I've, I've implemented all of that infrastructure now in assembler uh and i now have webcams all the webcams run and i'm looking at video in a little window and just last night uh i ended up capturing the the frames as they're going by and now i feed it into a qr code recognizer so whew, i'm close we should um, say this is just one implementation. People are going to be able to implement whatever they want, right? This is your reference implementation. Absolutely. And, I mean, I'll be surprised if anyone else does it in Windows because, I mean, GRC will have one, which is absolutely complete. But I imagine they'll be for Mac and for oh, yeah. maybe other ones natively for Linux rather than Wine implementations. And certainly Android and iOS. And there's already one for Android, and I know that, the, that there are people working on them for iOS. And then a bunch of people doing the, the, the server-side stuff. So um, I, I wanted to mention briefly uh, two things that occurred over on the hard drive side. One was a question I got, why can't Spinrite be built into a drive? And also, what about an OS? And uh, that's come up from time to time. And the reason is that, that a drive, while it's very capable, is, is actually not very smart. And one of the things that software running on a host computer can be is way smarter than the drive is able to be. And one of the ways you get smartness is from having access to huge amounts of memory. And when, when Spinrite comes to a, a so-called grinding halt and fires up its Dynastat system, that dynamic statistics system, it is taking samples of a sector which is refusing to be read and filling the system's memory with those samples and dynamically analyzing the samples in order to essentially reverse engineer what data was most likely stored in the sector that refuses to give it up. So that requires a bunch of, of, of you know, sort of both heavy-duty number crunching and access to a huge sample pool that no drive is could spend the money to have on board and it just wouldn't make sense. So that's so so really Spinrite and the drive are working together where Spinrite is functioning sort of as the drive's brain extension in order to help it recover sectors that it's having problems with. And now why not do that in the OS? And that may be something I mean, I've always been thinking about that. The problem is Spinrite is now becoming multi-platform officially with version 6.1, which I will get back to the second I finish the Squirrel client, so that it runs on Windows 
um, and or 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 I, I should say a PC and Mac hardware, both, uh, and is OS agnostic. So Spinrite is still not caring about your operating system. It'll know about uh, it'll know in version seven about more about the file systems. But in order to build it into the OS, it would have to be running in all of these different kernels. And, you know, I'm going to need something to do after Spinrite 7 is finished. So uh, I think building it into the OS makes a lot of sense. So I think we'll get there. And lastly, I want to talk about a really interesting piece that I read about the end of RAID 5, arguing for why we need RAID 6. And it, it, it was... I thought it made a really good point. What's happening is, as drives have been growing in size, as we know they've got, they have been like phenomenally, the unrecoverable error rates have been creeping upwards also. So, unre- just because the bits are have becoming so small in order to get these ridiculous. So you probably saw that Western Digital, I think, no, I think it was Seagate, uh, is is now announced and is. I think they're starting to ship their the first eight, eight terabytes. terabytes. Unbelievable! Like, oh. I okay. thought as soon as I see that, I go, "Oh, Steve must be shivering." So, so well, the good news is six one was benchmarking at, I think it was two hours per terabyte, which allowed it to do a four terabyte drive overnight. So that brings us back into feasibility range. And then eight terabytes, of course, would be, you know, 16 hours. But still, if you're working eight hours during the day, you could start it at the end of your work day and it would be pretty much done. Eight terabytes by the time you need it again, 16 hours later. So we're, you know, we're still okay. Uh, But yes, uh, here's the problem. RAID 5 works by, by allocating one whole drive f- as parity. So what that means is if you, have, if you have two drives, you add a third drive which contains the XOR of the first two. And what that allows is any any sector on any any of those three drives can be unreadable and the and that you, you it turns out you don't need that because you can xor the data on the remaining drives in order to recover the the data so essentially you've created a a parity drive and so a three drive array is not very efficient because you're like you 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 have three drives but you've given up one completely one third just for the redundancy but you can run like a raid 5 with six drives where one of the six is your parity drive similarly there the 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 cost of the redundancy is only one sixth rather than one third so it's twice as efficient. The problem is, if a drive fails, 
then you do the famous so-called re, you know, raid rebuild. And you may have noticed that raid controllers have gotten smart. They don't even require you to, to nor- normally build the array initially. They do a smart build where they only build as much as they need just because building is building a raid now on four terabyte drives, it takes forever, essentially. Here's the problem. With unrecoverable error rates having grown compared to the size of drives, if a drive fails and you must rebuild the RAID, during the rebuilding process, you have zero redundancy. And an error which occurs during rebuild cannot be corrected. So the argument is being made that we now need RAID 6. And as I've mentioned before in the podcast, that's all I run. I run RAID 6 on GRC servers here on my own uh, desktop machine. That's my, my RAID configuration of choice. And what that gives you is two drives of redundancy. So you could, you, could spont- you, you could lose one, no one would care. You could lose two, and you could still recover all your data. And so just something to keep in mind, uh, with drives being as inexpensive as they are, with controllers becoming more sophisticated, I would say l- take a look at RAID 6. If you don't mind sacrificing two drives for redundancy, if you're if you're uh, array is large enough that two drives is a low enough percentage to give up, uh, it's worth considering just because drives are, you know, being, being very, very aggressive about the amount of data that they're now storing, storing on their surfaces. Is that eight terabyte drive just because of more platters or more data density? That's data density. Uh, they, they've... Um, what Holy they're doing moly. is well, well. Actually, I, I I may have to say platters because they're the the other thing that they've switched uh, they've done is they've switched to helium inside, oh. and helium <laughs> is it, it's reduced the friction of the platters um, with the environment, and I believe it also allows the heads to fly closer, and it has allowed them to put more platters into the the drive, but if as they as they lower the head h- h- flying altitude, which helium also does, that gets the head closer to the surface, which essentially gives it better focus. And so you also increase your bit density as a consequence of changing the atmosphere inside the drive. So yeah, these things just refuse to give up. They're, we never density. thought that we'd get this kind of density. I mean, I, I no. thought, I remember no. by 2000, I thought, said, by, by the year 2000, we'll be using some form of, you know, holographic storage because there's no way this physical spinning media could get so could get dense it's enough. Just, it's, it, just, and it's amazing. It's so cheap, Leo. Yeah. My God, yeah. when you consider the, the, the cost per bit. Well, and of course, the phenomenon is... The cloud and cloud storage. It's funny, too. I also read someone saying, and, and th- this refers back to MacBreak Weekly. Um, someone said, rather than thinking in terms of the cloud, 
you know, calling it the cloud gives people somewhat of a false sense of security. Think in terms of storing your data on someone else's computer. Right. That's, That's what, what you're is. doing. Yeah. You're storing your data on someone else's computer. Right. So instead of just sort of, I mean, the cloud sort of sanitizes it yeah. as if like, oh, you know, no one has it. No, somebody does. Right. It's on somebody else's computer. Right. That's a very good point. Um, do you want to... You had one more sponsorship. I do. Wanna... Should we do that before we launch into the uh, PGP? Let's do it, and then we'll wrap with our Stuff. PGP right. discussion. Well, it's, uh, it's the one sponsor on this show that Steve does not get behind. He likes to read his books... Ah, uh, Audible. ...on a screen. <laughs> I beg to differ, my friend. There's nothing like Audible books... And you uh, know, Leo, I'm in the minority. I think now. I well, I really I I mean, Jenny was talking about. She says, "Yeah, it's not it's not very long. It's only two and a half hours." I said, "Okay, wait a minute. When when how many pages have we started referring? How when have we started referring to the length of a book in duration?" So she's an audible now, listener, obviously. Yep, yeah. she is. You know, you'll get there someday. Um, you don't have a commute. That's one reason. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but, and, and 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 actually, Jenny walks. She's got dogs, yeah. and she loves to walk her dogs. Yeah. And, and, so and you you have the amazing ability while you're on a treadmill to read. I do well on I have a Kindle. Screen. Yep. And I don't get that either because my head's going like this. On the other hand, <laughs> in the gym, I pump the audio books in. So does Lisa. Yep. In fact, I know when Lisa's working out because I'll hear her Nora Roberts booming through the house. Uh-uh. Audible is just awesome. I am a well, where you know we're Audible. Fans, many of us. Steve's the last holdout. Um, you can read all my books on Audible. Well, that's the neat thing. You know, you do a lot of Kindle books, and uh, the WhisperSync technology on Audible is phenomenal. You get many of the audio books when you buy them on Audible, they get a discounted Kindle book. I've been doing that with. Uh, the goldfinch and so i can read you know this way i get to read if i want to you know lie in bed quietly at night and read i can read it on my uh, my kindle app but it then it, it synchronizes with the audio so when i pick up the book to go to the gym i pick it up right where i left off that is a nice feature and of course uh, the, because audible is owned by amazon everything comes out now at audible.com uh, many of them of course recorded because a lot of publishers understand that uh, there is a, a big market for this recorded by the publishers. But Audible has also been doing a fabulous job of recording classics like uh, science fiction that were never recorded. Here's Michael C. Hall, who I love, Dexter, reading um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, I, yeah. you know, so you get a great actor. These it's are fun to have his voice. Well, yes. exactly. These are performances. And that's that's what I particularly love about Audible. It's not just some guy raining, groaning on. These are very, very exciting performances uh, by some of the best actors in the world. And Audible's been recording these uh, science, classic science fiction, bringing back these classic books. They also have, um, look, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar uh, in the play in a performance for audio. They have the great uh, courses now on audible.com, which I am very excited about. These are uh, some of the best college professors in the world giving their lectures. Uh, the Great Courses is, is an independent uh, company that, that they're providing all of their lectures now on Audible. So here's the here's the deal. We we know you probably gone. Well, I don't know. Is this right for me? Here's the deal. We're going to give you a, your first book free. In fact, your first month free if you go to audiblepodcast.com/security. Now you're you're going to sign up uh, for the gold account. That's the book a month subscription. 
you get to uh, oh Momuchio Kaku's Einstein's Cosmos. Oh, I love this stuff. Um, how about this one? You are now less dumb by David McCraney, <laughs> author of You're Not So Smart. So <laughs> there's education, there's fiction, classics, there's biography, there's science fiction. Uh, it just goes on and on. Get that first book free. The hardest thing to do is going to be which book do I choose? Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You pay nothing for the first month. Cancel any time in the first day, uh, first 30 days, and you will be keeping that book forever. You get to keep it. See, Whisper Sink Ready. So this is Watership Down, the classic by Richard Adams about yep. bunnies. This is an amazing book. Um, and uh, you can get the Kindle version for an, an, a reduced price and then go back and forth. It, oh, I just love Audible. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. With the gold subscription, by the way, comes the Daily Digest of the New York Times of the Wall Street Journal, also part of the deal. New Peter F. Hamilton. I haven't read this one. The Nano Flower. It's another Greg Mandel uh, no, book. Actually, that, that's old. Is it? Uh, yeah, that that's his. Uh, that's really I good I love stuff. the Mandel Both. books. I love yep. them. So I guess, see, this yep. is an example of them. I read Mindstar Rising on your uh, recommendation. This is an example good. of them going back and getting these classics. With his uh, side gland or whatever it was he yeah. had. He was able to yeah. squeeze some gland. Awesome. <laughs> We're uh, big fans. I'll tell you, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Highly recommend it. It brought reading back into my life because who has time now? But there is well, time. I'll tell you, th this advertiser and sponsor makes so much sense for a podcast oh, yeah. because we, we have listening. people who – exactly. We have listeners right. uh, who are able to fit that into their lives. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Take take time out once a week for security now yes and you know what i and do all of your we're going to london in a month at least tonight right. for a week and i always get books about yeah. the place we're going i read books about venice nice. while we're walking through venice and it just brings it to life it's so much fun so i haven't decided what books yet but i will be going there and picking up some books all right let's continue on time to talk about emailing so the 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 impetus for this was uh matthew green uh, who describes himself in this in this context as a somewhat cranky cryptographer uh, uh, at Johns Hopkins? Um, he started his blog posting uh, from uh, it's it's just oh eight I don't know what day but I think it was like maybe the middle uh, early to middle of last month uh, of August uh, saying last Thursday. Yahoo announced their plans to support end-to-end -end encryption using a fork of Google's end-to-end -end email extension. This is a big deal, says Matthew. With providers like Google and Yahoo on board, email encryption is bound to get a big kick in the ass. This is something email badly needs. So, great work by Google and Yahoo, which is why the following complaint is going to seem awfully ungrateful. I realize this, and I couldn't feel worse about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so, a couple things. First of all, um, what what Google has explained is they're very proud of what they've done because they've bitten the bullet, not for the first time. But they've bitten, okay, a bullet of tackling crypto in JavaScript. And there's a, there's a famous blog, it's famous in the security community, blog posting 
and I can't quite remember the title. It's something like, uh, oh, no, it's JavaScript Considered Harmful to <laughs> Cryptography. Uh, I just like that characterization. And it is the case that 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 is difficult to control an autom- what is regarded as an automatic language. Our, our listeners will remember that last week I shared my retrospective on how difficult it was for me to be so careful not to leave any sensitive data around in the squirrel client. Even even local variables allocated on the stack, I would I, I would wipe them if they had ever contained sensitive data. The moment I no longer needed them, I would proactively zero them. And that's normally something that just sort of happens when you leave a subroutine is the stack pointer is is popped up over those over those buffers, those variables, and they, they sort of disappear but they're still the memory is still there so it's like not not in my case i'm going to wipe those out before i release them well in a language like javascript you have almost no control of memory management it's doing that for you it's keeping reference counts it's no it's figuring out whether you're still using this anywhere and if not it, it releases it so it is it is a mean i mean a real exercise to to create something which you can consider secure in javascript that is crypto and and that's essentially what this post was talking about also the you know the you don't have strong typing not have uh, you know javascript is a weakly typed language where it figures out the type whether integer boolean uh, string or or a floating value from your usage and also sort of freely mushes them back and forth depending upon your need. So all of this is sort of antithetical to writing secure code. Now, Google does note that in the event of Chrome crashing with this extension, which is providing these crypto services written in JavaScript your sensitive data could escape in a dump, in a crash dump. So it's like, oopsie, okay, well, that's a problem. But it's it's the, an example of what they just don't have control over because they're operating in a in a several levels removed from the machine where it's able to crash out from under them and whatever they're doing at the time is part of the crash image. So, whoops. Um, still, they're very proud of the work they've done. Um, I've been using uh, traditionally, like for the other secure stuff that I did, the Stanford University JavaScript library, which is a bunch of crypto primitives, also written by really careful cryptographers uh, who understood the challenge uh, in order to get you know, various sorts of crypto primitives finished. So, so we have Google and Yahoo who are, have, have, have announced their intentions of offering some sort of service. Um, this triggered Matthew to sort of say, okay, um, here's the problem. These guys are implementing PGP. 
open PGP, but still basically a framework which is old. And so can't we do something better? Does it make, he sort of asks the rhetorical question, does it make sense in this day and age if we're going to do something to do PGP? And the and there are a number of problems with doing that. Uh, in the show notes every week, I try to find a fun picture. And in this, in this week's show notes, the picture on the first page of the show notes gives you a sense of the relative key sizes of the, of like old keys that we knew how to do then compared to new keys that we know how to do now. And the the original PGP, I think it was a, a 3096-bit PGP key, is just this massive blob of, of crypto-looking text. Whereas um, a state-of-the-art uh, base 58 key, base 58 is the, is the, conversion from binary into ASCII that avoids the use of 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 the non-alphanumeric characters that are because you normally have only 62 you've got uppercase ASCII lowercase or uppercase alphabetic lowercase alphabetic and 0 through 9 that gets you to 62 then you need two more which are normally plus and backslash, or bam, I think plus and forward slash, but then those are not URL friendly. So then there's a base64 URL which uses um, hyphen and underscore to get the last two to get up to 64. That way you can use six bits to uh, a, a six bit character set. Well, this uses base58. Um, I'm trying to think who does that. One of the, I think it's one of the cryptocurrencies uses base58. Um, in order to avoid not only those two those two characters, but also zero and uppercase O and L and one, I think that brings them down to fifty eight. But anyway, it, it's uh, you can with the state of the art public key, it's just a tiny little string of of ASCII that is that is even got you know the confusing characters removed from it and it has the same cryptographic strength today that this massive 3096 blob of of public key did you know P, pgp format uh public key did back in the day so uh, and, and I know that you Leo mentioned that you've sort of moved over to smime smime has the advantage of 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 better integration into email clients um and it it uh it's able to use the traditional certificate authority uh public key infrastructure hierarchy or self-signed certs where you just you know provide your smime cert to someone and say you know we're going to communicate Here's my certificate. And you can do things like, you know, the, the recipient can take a hash of it and then you just check to make sure that you've got the same signatures and then you know that you're, that, that you've, you know, there, there's been no problem with somebody getting uh, in between and, and intercepting you. Yeah, that's chiefly what so, I use both for as a, ver- as a verification as opposed to encryption. 
Although once Correct. somebody has has your key, they can do both. So uh, that's nice. Right. So I have to so, say that the so, S mime confuses people just as much as the PGP because it's yeah, an attachment. PS7S yeah, attachment. Yes. And all of this, I mean, this is the, the I, I think it's the overriding problem is that that the fundamental architecture of email was plain text. Right. It was never meant to be encrypted. And notice that none of this solves the 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 tangential problem of metadata that is none of no pgp nor smime deals with who is sending email to whom that's still all in the public and so even though the envelope itself may have encrypted contents the envelope is still being carried by the traditional you know out in the open email transport system which you know doesn't have security as 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 its as, as its prime focus so so yes i i you know your feeling is exactly what those people who have who have tried to use encryption um uh come away with so so um matthew makes the point that that regardless of the technology we use, managing keys, as he puts it, sucks. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, I mean, and there there have been various things that have been tried. Uh, recently, there's Keybase.io is a new experimental startup for like creating a a, a, a secure place to store keys. Um, but we, you know, we've had key servers before. We've talked about the web of trust notion, where you have key signing parties in order to to cross sign keys, in order to sort of like sort of create your own non centralized infrastructure of 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 public keys, and then the use because because no one can like check a public key carefully and they're so big tra- you know traditional pgp keys are so big then we use much shorter fingerprints um but the very fact that you need a fingerprint demonstrate that you know there there's a sort of a fundamental problem here and then we've got the notion of of autonomous or automatic management We've talked about how iMessage, for example, manages keys for users. And while that's very convenient, it also creates a loss of control. There, there's an inherent trade-off being made with the security of the system. You know, we just assume that Apple is going to never slip um, a government eavesdropping key into the the set that we receive when we send an iMessage, if they do, then somebody other than the set of recipients we intended is able to decrypt it. So, so really farming key management out to a third party where it's done with maximum convenience means it's done with, you know, some clear sacrifice of security. And then the other thing that, that Matthew notes is that None of this technology has any concept of forward security. This is something we've talked about on the podcast a number of times, and it's it's now becoming a bullet point that that we really have to have 
moving forward. Um, traditional web server certificates, where the certificate was what, where the certificate was used to encrypt the 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 conversation's symmetric key. We know that those are not safe. That model did not have forward secrecy, such that if someone obtained the certificate, if someone was storing, archiving the dialogue, which they could not decrypt, and then later obtained the server certificate, they could go back and retroactively or retrospectively decrypt those conversations. That's no forward security. Um, forward security means that a, a compromise of keys cannot be used to decrypt past traffic. And unfortunately, both with P uh, PGP and SMIME, there they were those protocols were designed back like the original web server uh, uh, you know SSL protocol without the a, a a sense of the importance of forward security today that's a problem because we have we're in a world where it's entirely feasible for the NSA or whomever to be archiving vast quantities of encrypted traffic on the off chance that keys will become available later and then they'll go back they'll, they'll be able to go back and decrypt all of that past traffic so so Matthew's point is does it does it make sense today to be implementing um old although tried and true standards and and I think he makes the point uh with a series of examples actually um that it doesn't um he asked rhetorically what should we be doing if if you know repeating the past is not that um so he he suggests a proper approach to key management um some sort of centralized key management uh he argues would would still be better than nothing um and he points to some work that has been done uh with signal or off the record protocols um he argues that forward secrecy really, you know, from for anything being designed today, it needs to be baked into the protocol at, uh, and that it should be any precondition of a secure messaging system. Um, and for some reason, he he uh, he um, he has some he has a picture of the Fresh Prince, which I guess was I'm not sure when the French the Fresh Prince of Bel Air was airing. But he says cryptography that postdates the fresh prints. <laughs> that seems fair. And, he's, and he says en enough said. Yeah. And then and the point being, this is that we are we are using really yeah. old crypto, yeah. and we know how to do much better crypto now um, than than we did. And he finally says, screw backwards compatibility. Yay. Secu yeah. Securing both encrypted and unencrypted email is too hard. Yes. We need dedicated networks that handle this from the start. And I think it was, again, something that I picked up on one of the other podcasts you were, you were doing, Leo, where the, it was observed that today's user is very fickle. We are very 
we, we, there, there, there's a very low friction of adoption of some other service if it provides benefits. That is to say, leave email where it is. Let email be email. It, it is, it is, you know, store and forward. It is, it's got no metadata protection. It's difficult to encrypt because it's always being added on top and it confuses people. If people want secure messaging, let's go elsewhere. You know, and the point is, we've got clients. Clients are a dime a dozen. Um, ever since the Snowden revelations, you know, the, the alternative secure things sort of generically are being announced daily. And so Matthew concludes by saying, okay, what's coming? Um, there, there is great work being done. It has nothing to do, oh, I, I, I should mention that even though Google and Yahoo are, they sort of have an open PGP feel, um, I haven't looked at it closely, but I've seen, uh, I think it was Matthew making comments that they're not fully PGP compatible. So they're like adopting old protocols, but also not maintaining full compatibility. So they're sort of, again, creating something not what we want for today. Um, there is a, a, a protocol that Silent Circle is using called SCIMP, which is the Silent Circle Instant Messaging Protocol, where they've they've basically, they're saying, we're not going to try to fix email. We're going to do a state-of-the-art protocol um, starting from scratch. So, and we've talked about Silent Circle. That's, you know, on, on its way. Um, dark Mail is the, is the effort by Phil Zimmerman, who, of course, famously gave us PGP. Um, he's not trying to keep PGP alive either. Um, he's looking at, you know, how we move forward. He's working famously with Ladar Levison of, of LavaBit. Um, and on their site, on the darkmail.info site, they say Silent Circle and LavaBit are developing a new way to do email with end-to-end -end encryption. We welcome like-minded organizations to join our alliance. And so that's in the process. Then there's something else, um, which is uh, move, moving along over on, on GitHub. Um, Adam Caudill has something called SMIMP, which is Simple Messaging and Identity Management Protocol, which if you look through the bullet points, I mean, it is everything we could want. Um, and in fact, our, our, the friend of the show, uh, Taylor Hornby, uh, whose handle is uh, FireXWare, uh, has been involved in that effort and has uh, given some credit for uh, helping out for, with some of the uh, security protocols. Um, and uh, Adam writes that SMIMP is a communication and identity system designed to address the modern threats that weren't considered when the traditional email system was designed. Transparent encryption, forward secrecy, simple self-hosting, auditable user information, and strong privacy are all baked into the design from the beginning. And um, not to leave something out, there's also a, another one 
called MailPile, uh, which is MailPile.is. Unfortunately, it's built upon op- OpenPGP. So I, I really like the idea of, uh, uh, as you apparently do too, Leo, starting over, coming up with a secure messaging platform. And I, I see nothing wrong with leaving email where it is. I mean, le- we don't have to replace it. We don't have to obsolete it. It has its place. And um, one of the things, for example, I just scanned briefly the SMIMP page, but I noticed, for example, that there was a proof of work as part of, again, baked into the protocol. And, of course, that is anti-spam. You create a proof of work in order to make it expensive to, to you know, relatively expensive as opposed to, like, a effectively zero cost to send somebody email. It's because email has zero cost that spam is a problem. If sending a message has a computational burden that is that is sort of proportional to your need to actually send it in, intentionally to another person, that creates a cost which prevents the whole spam, you know, mass uh, emailing phenomenon. So I, I do think it makes a lot of sense to look at a next generation protocol rather than trying to burden a, you know, our email system, which just, you know, sure, if you, if you have no alternative, there are ways to encrypt messages. But it, it just never got off the ground because it was, it was always a problem. And I think in this day and age, post-NSA, where our needs are, 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 are significantly um, more mature than they were back then. For example, por- forward secrecy. No one's going to really feel comfortable knowing that their PGP or open PGP encrypted email can be retroactively decrypted if they were ever to lose control of their keys. So open PGP doesn't do it. it PGP can't do that. It was never part of the protocol. I think it really does make a And again, it also doesn't hide any metadata. So somebody can always see that, that you're interacting with someone else. So we will be in years coming, uh, maybe even months coming, uh, keeping our eye on these developing protocols because uh, you know, it, it looks like some really smart people are, are focusing on solving this problem for us. You know, we go full circle because uh, the same problem really with email as with these uh, photos in iCloud. The real key is to have uh, encryption available to us for things that go out to the Internet. Uh, yes. And means to keep them encrypted. Trust no one. You've always said this. Pre-Internet uh, encryption, PI. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you had encryption, uh, you'd have control. The only way yeah. to control stuff of the cloud is to have trust no one encryption. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, you know, Apple's model does create a a um, a promise of convenience and it's it's more difficult to pre encrypt everything. You lose some some features. We, for example, we've talked about cloud storage providers that that give you the convenience of web browser access to your cloud data. Well, for you to have web browser access to your cloud data, 
um, you need to either decrypt that in the browser or they need to be able to decrypt it for you. And uh, the good news is because now we're seeing it, it being feasible to do crypto in the browser, we're able to offer those features where before we really weren't. Uh, but yeah, we, we basically, we just want to consider that somebody else's computer, which is the cloud, uh, is just storing noise, just absolutely pseudo-random nothing. And so if somebody did crack our accounts, all they're going to get is a bunch of, of, of noise that is meaningless to them. Yeah. yeah. I think this is something we can solve. I think Especially we're on the way to it. because of public key crypto. You don't have a symmetric key. You really have a means to do this. Right. And these, you know, t today's modern keys are so much smaller. I mean, they're so I love practical. That. You should see yes. the 2048-bit key block <laughs> that I was using with PGP. Well, people think something's broken. It's like, oh, what, you know. What's that gobbledygook? So, you know. Except now with S-MIME, I've got an attachment. As I said, a P7S attachment. And yeah. universally, my Henry just said, what is that attachment? And I can't open it, and what am I supposed to do with it? And yeah. no one knows about this stuff. This doesn't exist. We need something a little bit, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think it, the, the right solution is don't ask, don't ask email to do this. No. Create, create a, an alternative platform where that was designed from scratch with state-of-the-art crypto for that purpose. And maybe there can be a gateway between them or maybe not. Because, again, users have zero friction uh, uh, associated you know from everything we're seeing this you know the clients will be free everything will be free so if you want to hold a really super secure private conversation you do it over here for stuff that doesn't matter where you want infinite compatibility and everybody has an email address you do it with email as always you've cut through to the gist of the matter the nub of the matter thank you steve gibson GRC.com is the place he hangs his hat and his spin right. You can get a copy right there of the world's best file uh, hard drive, I should say, maintenance and recovery utility. You should also go there to get uh, more information about security now, including 16-kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired and full transcriptions for those who like to read along as they listen. Uh, thank you, Elaine Ferris and Steve, for making those possible. Uh, it's also a good place to go if you have a question or a comment because uh, Steve doesn't do email. <laughs> He has a feedback form. It's grc.com slash feedback. Next week, uh, security permitting, we will do a Q&A episode. And we should make a scheduling note that due to the Apple announcement, the podcast has been scheduled at one thirty yeah. rather than 1. So what so, we and that's even, Yeah, that's even soft. We anticipate yeah. roughly two hours for Apple. 10 noon, we'll do the live coverage next Tuesday the 9th. Uh, then we'll do uh, Mac Break Weekly noon to one thirty. And uh, get to you at one thirty. I hope we'll certainly try to keep to that schedule. But we, one thing we don't control is Apple. So yeah, uh, we'll yeah. do the best. And I'll, I, believe me, I will be, be panting <laughs> and watching the whole morning too. So yeah. well, we have I'm, other I'm shows after my... you, so we have to keep it all on on a schedule. Yep, yeah. yep. Good. Thank you, Steve. And yeah, I guess I won't be here uh, and and uh, early the first uh, Wednesday in October, or first oh, Tuesday in we got, October. We got all month. We got all we got month. Plenty of time. We'll talk about that. Yeah, later. plenty of time. Hey, thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Leo. Bye-bye. Security.